Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And if you aren't familiar with us, I'll tell you, we always like to remind our listeners that we're all about charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And I like to think about that as two sort of ways of thinking well, thinking virtuously as a Christian. On one side, we need to be serious about the arguments that we're making. We need to make good ones. We need to think with the the greatest depth that we can. We shouldn't be afraid of knowledge. We should pursue it. We should pursue wisdom. We should pursue those things, reckless abandon, and not worry about having too much knowledge. Now, obviously, knowledge does puff up, so we always have to fight against that. We have to be humble, which is the flip side. We want to be charitable. We want to be kind. We want to be gracious. We want to be cheerful in those things that we do. I think those two sides of the same coin are extremely important. We can't allow one or the other to overbalance what we're trying to do here. So we want to think virtuously as Christians. Well, that's our whole goal. That was the whole purpose of the podcast and everything that we do here. Now, this is the Hanover House, and it has a jam-packed crew today. So every month we try to do, most of the time, an episode of the Hanover House where we bring together guys from the London Lyceum and oftentimes others who are friends of the London Lyceum to discuss matters that are especially important for the life of the local church. So today we're going to be talking about confessions and confessionalism. And yes, we have a crew across the entire country to be talking about this. So we've got the London Lyceum guys, Cody Float, Garrett Walden. Both of them are in Alabama. You have Jacob Denhollander and Jake Stone, who are both in Kentucky. Connor McMakin, who is in Michigan. I'm in North Carolina. And then we're also joined by two esteemed brothers, Joe Thorne and Robert Briggs. Joe is in Chicago land in Illinois. I grew up in Illinois, but not near Chicago land. I mean, you guys probably know Joe from Doc and Devo. Awesome, awesome podcast, especially for those who are just being introduced to Reformed Baptist life who might uh, not understand a lot of those things. They, they really talk at a level that you can understand. So Jimmy Jimmy Fowler is his co-host, and man, I love listening to Doc and Devo. It's probably the podcast I listen to the most. So I highly recommend what they're doing over there. I mean, they it's just really cool. So go take a listen. You'll enjoy it. I, I love the banter and, and the friendship that they have. It's just fun. And you have Robert Briggs, who's a pastor in Sacramento, California, with Steve Meister, who you probably know, who every time he says something on Twitter, apparently blows up. Um, <laughs> which, that's difficult, you know, difficult to keep them under control. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, so I'm talking too much. I want to get into confessions and confessionalism. I mean, I think Joe and... I think I am in an SBC church. Church Jake and Jacob are not. Robert, you're not. Garrett, are you SBC? Okay, so Garrett and Cody are SBC. So like half the guys here are SBC. And I think uh, something that kind of like motivated a little bit of the discussion is just observing uh, sort of reactions and thoughts on what confessions do and what they're supposed to limit and supposed to protect and how they're supposed to function both at a local church level and maybe at an associational level, whether that's regional or national. So I think that kind of like a lot of people have these questions. What does it do? How does it, how does it work? So we're just going to talk through that. So let's, let's go ahead and get started. Maybe just Robert, tell me in your opinion, what's your elevator pitch? If someone walked into you from the SBC meeting and said, look, I, I don't see why we need to have some sort of confession. What's the purpose of this? Um, why why should my church even think about using a confession? What would you say? Well, I'd probably start by saying to them that you actually already have a confession. Uh, you may not be conscious of it, but you do have one. 
Um, you know, we all have a confession. It's whether it's written down or whether we keep it in our heads and uh, it's not exposed to the world. And so I try to walk someone through the reality of what we're talking about when we talk about, you know, confessions, um, essentially to show them that uh, when we talk about confessions, we're simply saying this is what we believe the Bible teaches with regards to X, Y or Z. Um, and I try to help them to see that, you know, I have a woman that comes to my door quite regularly. I haven't seen her for a little while through COVID, but Linda, a Jehovah's Witness, regularly knocks my door, regularly leaves me off the Watchtower magazine and regularly put it in my cult section in my library. And uh, I like to keep up to date with some of the things they're saying. And, and, and we always will start with, we, we both believe the Bible. I say, well, the question is, what do we believe the Bible says? And at that moment, we've moved into what we confess. Uh, and I would try to show someone that, Actually, we all have a confession. It's what we believe the Bible teaches that's the issue. Um, and it's either written down or it's in our heads. Good stuff. Now, Joe, would you nuance that at all? And I can't remember. Do you, You've got those three little booklets. Do you have sections in there on what confessionalism looks like? I got to be honest, man. I don't remember what I write. I don't remember what I preach, man. Once it's out, it's gone. So I can't tell you what's in my book. No idea. But... Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I first of all, uh, Robert, that's like that is, I think, such a brilliant place to start with people to clarify. Like, you do have one. I, that's because it it softens them up. And really, part of what theologians and pastors, in particular, have to do is lead people from where they're at to where we want them to go. And so, you got to kind of soften them up, like body shots, sort of, right? Soften them up, make them a little bit more pliable, not to manipulate them, right? But to soften them up with beginning truths so that they can get to the harder truths. And that's a great place to start. Another place that I start uh, early on with them is like points of agreement that lend themselves to confessionalism. So like, well, you desire theological clarity. Right? You, you don't want people teaching certain doctrines in your church, like absolutely theological clarity. Okay. And so you want, and you want unity, right? You want the theological, spiritual unity in your church. Absolutely. And you want to be able to defend against false teachings that are, you know, constantly encroaching. And you want to be distinguished, like especially Baptists. You don't want people to, you don't want people to think you're Presbyterian, right? Like, absolutely not. All right. This is why, historically, all Baptists have used confessions. <laughs> like, you know, it's like general Baptists, particular Baptists, we do this because they are, it, it is a helpful way to clarify, to unite, and to distinguish uh, both within and outside of the church. So that's just another kind of entry-level thing that I like to do with people to encourage them to consider that. And that, and in the context of, like, historically, you're the anomaly. Like, the fact that you don't want to be, uh, like, you're the weirdo that's out of step with Baptist history. So, like, those things kind of help them go, okay, well, maybe maybe they're not as scary as I as I think they are. And I And part of the problem is that we have the Baptist faith and message which, although it, it does have the beautiful language of the Heidelberg Catechism and, and, the, and the clarity and rigor of the Second London Confession, uh, uh, we have this Baptist faith and message, which is okay, but it's not even really utilized. It's not, it's not held up as the thing that unites us. So even the only confessional framework that Southern Baptists have and for most of them is the is the BF and M, and it's like a eh, take it or leave it. So I think it's really important to start where Robert started, and to start with these beginning principles before you start really laying out like the the harder stuff. All right, perfect. So now we've got the baseline of what confessionalism sort of is at the basic, very core level. Now I want to know what does it mean to be confessional? Um, is it just like I can have this 
paper on the wall, I, I think everybody would say no. We we need something more than just a piece of paper on the wall. Um, so how would you cash that out? And I think one particular aspect that I'm most interested interested in is how much of the confession needs to be confessed for you to be confessional. So I think you have questions in SBC life. The, the question came up there was, what does the term pastor mean? Well, it says that only men are to be pastors. Or So what does that, how binding really is that? Because then they'll say, well, it also says you have to have clo- closed communion. So if that's the case, then a bunch of churches are out of step with confession. So are we, are we really going to be that serious about taking all of the confession? Is there some like doctrinal core? And there's other questions in other parts of Baptist life of the doctrine of God. I mean, how serious do we have to be when it comes to something like the Second London Confession of Faith, where it says that God is without body parts or passions? What sort of divine simplicity is required with something like that? What sort of impassibility is required with something like that? So maybe walk me through a little bit of the nuances of how do we understand confessionalism? Are there different ways to think about it, to categorize it, to taxonomize it? And then we can go from there on what's what's most useful, you think? Well, I think I can only speak to my own context, obviously, Jordan, in regards to some of this stuff. Um, I think that there's definitely what I would see as a strict subscriptionism. And then we have to define what that is. Is it is it absolutely every statement in the, in the confession as laid down? Or there's maybe a system subscriptionism where there's more of a general uh, understanding and commitment to it but some latitude and then again we still have to define that because you know in in the circles I move in nobody has a real problem with well I take an exception to the statement about the Pope and the Antichrist right because I'm not sure about that or I don't accept that and that's been a general traditional perspective amongst what I call modern Reformed Baptists outside maybe the SBC context the one that I move in but when you then have, for example, chapter 2 of the Confession, the Doctrine of God, and now we're beginning to actually say, well, I take an exception to the word impassibility, or I take an exception to the issue of that God has without parts. I think now we're tampering with something far, far, far more significant. And, you know, when you think of the structure of our 1689 Confession, the first eight chapters essentially are universal Christian truths that have been believed down through the ages. Um, and once we start to pick that apart, we've actually taken uh, a hammer to the foundations of our our identity as Christian within the, the universal church, within, you know, our Catholicity. So we have to have those discussions. Some of those things are beginning, you know, there's some fires burning in Reformed Baptist circles right now about this stuff. Um, and I think we do need to have clarity on this because people are confused. Um, and so we've got to figure out, you know, the way I'm looking at it right now, there seems to be, uh, a system subscription amongst some brothers, and then there seems to be a strict subscription amongst other brothers. And uh, the big challenge is how do we get on and how do we relate and how do we define that so that we can still respect one another, recognize one another, but at the same time be honest with one another about where we stand on our embracing of confessional uh, statements. So on that note, it seems like for Southern Baptists, we have a confession of faith, the Baptist faith and message. But then we also have other governing documents, the Constitution and bylaws. And the Constitution and bylaws has that statement that churches can meaningfully partner with the Southern Baptist Convention if they have a a faith and practice that closely aligns. Is that, I think that's the phrase. So that seems like it's, we have, I guess maybe another, uh, this governing document seems to be advocating some sort of system subscription. 
because it says closely aligns. Would you would you say that that is probably accurate or or no? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't I don't. Th- I think I just see it differently. I wish it was completely different. But the way I see it is, is that it just makes the BFNM a point of reference. Like it's like that's where you know. But I wouldn't even call it a, a encouraging a system subscription because that means you understand the whole and the framework of what undergirds it, and therefore you're buying into that. I don't. I don't think the vast majority of Baptists are even prepared to to engage in it at that level. And that's part of the part of the, the hard work of, of confessionalism is you have to have a confession, a real confession, a good confession, and there aren't a lot. Um, so you have to have one of the great confessions in my estimation, but then you have to understand the confession, right? You have to actually understand historically, this is why Jim Renahan's uh, Symbolics 2 is going to be so, is so amazing. I haven't been able to read it. It's 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 one of the most important works that's been written in Baptist life in over a hundred years for sure. Um, but you've got to have a confession. You've got to understand a confession, and then you can, and only then can you then begin to implement uh, what Robert was talking about, or like deciding, like, well, at what level are we going to accept subscription or participation or cooperation? Um, and I do think there has to be some level, some level of latitude. Um, I take one exception a half exception in the second London confession. And it's not even on the Pope. I'm fine. Pope's the antichrist. Boom. Let's go. Let's do it. But, um, if I have to choose, I don't want to choose. I have to choose. I'm going Pope. Um, but I would say that, you know, it, I think it needs to happen at regional levels that this is like, so in other words, in our case, and maybe even in, in Presbyterian cases, um, I'm, I'm not sure how it works exactly, but for a church to enter into cooperation with the SBC, um, I think they should be vetted at the state level through like the, the basic um, tenets of the faith. Like, here is our statement of faith. Can you affirm it? And do you have do you have any exceptions here? And if you do, what are they? And then the local uh, state convention or association could then determine whether or not you're in bounds or out of bounds, right? Say, okay, this is you're, you're good enough. Like that exception, you've qualified, you've clarified it, fine. You can come on in. We give you the stamp. That stamp gives them the okay. And of course, if at the convention at the national level they find a problem, they can address it there. But I think there needs to be some sort of a regional context, whether that's local associations, state associational level, or whatever. But that assumes that everybody's on the same page, even as it pertains to the statement of faith. And I, and, I, and I know for a fact, we all know that Southern Baptists are not even all on the same page as it relates to the doctrine of regeneration, even though it's pretty clear in the unclear Baptist faith and message, it, that doctrine is rather clear for, it, for them. So I think, it's, I think you have to have a number of things in place before, you're gonna, before you can even begin to get there. I don't see the Southern Baptists getting to that place for a long time. So, I mean, tell me if you got... I, I'm referring to the SBC stuff mainly because I think it serves as a good test case. So this is a great opportunity to think through what does confessionalism mean? What does it look like? Because the, the questions that are arising are the exact questions that I think need to be asked and answered. So it seems to me, I used to think this sort of like, I don't know, system subscription when it came to confessionalism was a viable way to think about it. But the more I've thought about it and the more I've observed, it seems that if you go that route, it's it's unsustainable. So I've thought if you if you really want to be confessional, you either you confess the whole thing, or you say I need to revise points X, Y, and Z. 
and you revise them or you excise them or whatever you do. If you say, I can't confess that in good conscience, then you need to change it or just get rid of the whole thing and go with something slim down like the Apostles' Creed and say, this is what we're going to confess together because we can actually all agree on it. When you try to do this whole, well, some stuff is more important than others, but I'm not going to tell you which ones are important. It's just kind of up to the minds of the people who are in power at the time. That seems a recipe for disaster and the exact opposite thing of what confessions are supposed to do. I mean, am I am I crazy in thinking about that it that way? No, I, I think that you're hitting on a, uh, a point that kind of gets back to what Robert was identifying at the beginning, is that if if you're embarrassed by your confession or you're slipshod in subscription to it and unthinking and you're not uh, demanding some sort of reason subscription to it, um, what ultimately ends up happening is that the that the uh, uh, confession ceases to be the sort of governing force or a governing f- force in the life of the church and Christians. And then what, what happens is other factors become what identify what's important in that church, whether that's the lead pastors, pet projects, uh, the political um, identities within the, the church, um, all, all sorts of other things. And it's not to say that, you know, confessional churches are free from those um, temptations, so to speak, but there is at least an identification and a working towards an understanding that those, that that confession is what we source our, uh, what we work towards unity on. Um, because you're going to find unity around something. Uh, churches will inevitably, I mean, you see this in some of these giant churches, you know, especially post-2016, but I mean, and even in liberal churches, you see the same thing where it's it's the identity of whatever political cause that they've picked up. Um, so I think that I think that you're going to find um, unity around something, um, ultimately. And so a confession, a confession helps you to identify, and kind of place those boundaries. Otherwise, you're going to be led one way or the other. Jake from the Peanut Gallery. I mean, you're at a confessional church now. You weren't. Well, you were. were you, your church was confessional, but it wasn't of this sort of Second London confessionalism before. Well, Jordan, before now, do you have any comments? Jordan, he's also oh, at ahead, a confessional. Tom. No, he's also at a confessional seminary. Let's let's make sure that we understand that, right? I'll let Jake handle that. <laughs> Yes, we are. <clears throat> well, here's the thing. I think part of the problem that has arisen over time is that, as in most things in broad evangelical and in Baptist life, everything becomes about me, the individual. Confessions of faith were not written for one person in the sense of this is my confession. And I carry it around almost as if it's my my personal identity badge. Confessions were written for local churches, but even more for association of churches. In in Baptist life, these were documents that were to be used in a corporate sense, not just primarily as an individual marker. And that's become part of the problem is we've taken confessional documents and reduced it into a personal statement almost. And so then I get to interpret it you know, the way that I, I want it to be. And I saw this recently where um, you know, I, I shared something about 
what uh, Dr. Nettles points out, a difference between the Westminster and the second London and how a word is not used in the second London. And somebody said, well, you know, I would never I wouldn't define the word that way. Well, you know, with all due respect, it's not about how we define the word today. It's about when that word was used in the 17th century. What did they mean when they used specific words? So we have so much taken, you know, confessions and turned them into buffets where we take what we want and when we leave the rest. But it's a it's a the documents is a tapestry and every part has a specific place in it. And to your point earlier, Jordan, you know, system subscription. I mean, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, for example, that's such a broad document. I mean, if you can't subscribe to that specifically item by item, you're in real trouble, I would say, if you've got to revert to some kind of system subscription for something that broad. And then to the point that I'm at a confessional seminary, I mean, that would be my argument for how do you understand the abstract principles? You have to go back to the second London. The abstract is not just some creation out of thin air, for example. It has a legacy and a heritage that it stands in. So I agree earlier with what, what you know Joe said and so forth. We really, and I mean, I think even here at Southern, we would do well if we had a class devoted to creedal and confessional theology. You know, how do we understand these documents? Where did they come from? What does it mean to interpret them, to use them? Because we're, we're prone naturally, but then even in our own cultural moment to be so enamored with ourselves that we take every document and filter it through our own presuppositions and our own moment. And that's not how you do confessional theology. And last point, you know, being at here at RBC, I appreciated yesterday in both the morning and the evening sermon, you know, Pastor Jim cited the confession and part of his exposition of explaining a doctrine. You know, yesterday morning, he's talking about the doctrine of perseverance and how do we understand Christ is there to help us. And he read from the chapter on perseverance of the saints. And that's a great way of using confessions week in and week out of how they help us explain the truths of the scripture. So, that, Jake, you bring up another question that I'd like to hear Joe and Robert's opinion on. So how much of the confession do we have to go back to say, what do all the authors think on this topic? So I think the an easy example is when it comes to something like the doctrine of God, where it says God has no body parts or passions. I think if you just come to the confession, you say, I have to subscribe to these words. Well, it's a little bit thin, you know, no, no body, no parts, no passions. Well, I can interpret parts in a a pretty thin way. Uh, But if you want to go back and read what the authors intended by that and read their expositions, it seems to be a much thicker definition when it comes to that. So how important is it, how relevant is it that we have to know what the authors intended? Because I do think that there's probably some who worry, saying, well, if I have to know all the author's opinions, then doesn't that make the confessional document almost useless? You really need to append all these other authors' texts to it and say, just like the Chalcedonian Creed or all the other creeds where they had the confessional statement, but they append all these large letters, the the Leo's tome and others and say, these are authoritative interpretations of what we're saying. Is that what we have to do if we want to say authorial intent is matters, or is there another way to think about it? Let me jump in, Jordan. I think uh, uh, Jake, I really appreciate Jake bringing that out because I, I'm absolutely convinced that uh, 
it's vitally important that we understand what the original document was intended to teach. Because it's a historical document. It's got a date on it. There's a reason why it's got a date on it. Um, and I think that the, the point that Jake makes about the legacy, I mean, the, you know, we, we've got some controversies rising in Reformed Baptist circles right now in which it's clear to me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I have the privilege, Cody, is a PRTS, I'm just finishing my THM there. I've been doing it in Reformation and post-Reformation theology for a reason, and that is I wanted to really get to grips with the heritage of Reformed theology through Westminster so I could understand where our forefathers commonly derived their understanding and, and held to the same truths and where things were changed so that I could better and more intelligently and, and quite honestly, more honestly, uh, understand my own confession of faith. Um, and I don't have the luxury of saying, well, I know that's what they meant when they said that. I'm going to put my own spin on it and change it. I mean, I just think that's an issue of intellectual integrity. I mean, you know, it's, I think that's a character problem at that point. If I dissent from it, just say I dissent from it. I disagree. I, I don't hold to that. And I do think Reformed Baptists right now are going through a, a transition where we got the confession. I'm talking about modern Reformed Baptists, maybe outside SBC circles, uh, Jordan, who we got the confession, we're thankful for all of that, but now we're beginning to come to grips with, well, actually, what does it really mean in certain places? We thought it meant X, but actually it may have meant Y, and now we have to come to terms with, do I actually hold to this? I think, you know, uh, my friend Jim Renahan, as uh, you know, Joe has mentioned, is doing an excellent work in regards to that. I've also got the privilege of having read some of the stuff that's going to be published. I mean, I'm excited about that project. Um, we have not done historical theology well as Reformed Baptists. We just have to be honest about that. Be humble. Let's learn. Um, if a young pastor comes to me and says, do I have to have read all of these sources? I say, no, but you'll probably spend the rest of your life enjoying reading them. And uh, it's all about growing and be humble. And, you know, if, if I haven't read X, I'm not going to try and pontificate that I've read X. I'm just going to say, hey, that's how you say my wheelhouse right now. I'm reading over here right now. I've only got one head, two hands and 24 hours a day. <laughs> you know, I can only do so much. So just be humble. Be honest. We're all in a process of growing and our knowledge of God, and our knowledge of the gospel, and Christ, and how we ought to be understanding our confession, um, and that takes time, and we are realizing, actually, that some of the ways we've interpreted our confession have been more reflective of modern influence than historical uh, orthodoxy, and, and I think we just have to be humble enough to admit that, and, and be willing to, you know, uh, address it. That's good. And Joe, to throw out another example of one that I think might help our listeners, covenant theology. I mean, what was it, 30 years ago, uh, pretty much everybody would say, you know, this more 20th century sort of Reformed Baptist approach to it, where two covenant, or I guess two administrations, one covenant of grace, then Sam Renahan comes on the scene and like blows it all up and says, guys, you haven't been reading the early particular, particular Baptists. That's not how they thought about it. They thought about it this way. Does that mean that that section of the confession, you have to affirm sort of a what would be termed a 1689 federalism? Or is there room for, say, 20th century Baptist framework where there's two administrations of the same one covenant of grace? Um, you don't have to answer that specific question, but as I think about this, I think those are the questions that come into people's minds as they think about, can I honestly, truly be confessional if there are these sort of debatable questions of how do I interpret this properly? 
So, yeah, uh, I think this high, I'll answer the question, but it highlights a particular problem that uh, the vast majority of the people that I know that are interested in confessionalism are coming from non-confessional backgrounds, right? Like they're, they're finding it, they're discovering it, or they're wrestling with it. And so like they, they can't even, they don't even know like, well, where do I start? Is it okay for me to like gravitate towards that church and then just trust that tradition that they've done a good job. It's just, I think it's different, maybe easier when you're raised in that tradition, you're, you're taught, you're catechized. It's a complete, it's not a completely different game, but it's a, it is, it is a different approach. And I think you have a different level of security. Um, and I'm also with, uh, with Jake and Robert. I, I think you do have to understand the intended meaning. If we, if we get away from the, the, the intended meaning of these uh, confessional paragraphs and statements, then it can literally mean anything. So like it, it means something. What does it mean? It doesn't mean what I want it to mean. It means what it means. This is why I am very careful and gentle and nervous about my half exception to the 1689, because I know that I'm a dummy compared to the people that actually put it together. So, um, and it's then I'm not even taking it because it's my view. It's, it, it's a view that I prefer. So at any rate, um, when it comes to the uh, covenant theology, I, th I think it's, I, I, my response would be, first of all, not all credo-baptists were of the same thinking when it came to uh, covenant theology. There were, there were nuances there, um, just like there were nuances in approach to worship. And they were able to put together a confession that unified us enough on covenant theology and worship, for example, uh, that allowed us to move forward without nailing down too many particulars. So I don't think you would have to be a 1689 Federalist, though I think you should be. I don't think you have to be uh, to be uh, to affirm the 1689, but you do have to be covenantal. There's no there's no sense in which you're reformed or reformed a particular Baptist if you're not covenantal. You're something else. You're a Calvinistic Baptist, which is great, but that's just not the same thing. So I I would say you have to fall within the, the covenantal framework, covenant of works, covenant of grace, or new covenant. You have to have that. As soon as you ditch the covenant of works, you're not covenantal in any classic sense. You're not reformed uh, in any classic sense. Well, you got the TR badge there. Uh, it's reformed. not the badge I want. Um, I want a different badge. <laughs> I want a fun badge. Uh, <laughs> One of the things I've been thinking about in, as I've been studying is, you know, often in, in Baptist history, it was the work of local associations that really did a lot of amazing things. And one of the great things about affirming the same confession as a group of churches is it gives you a, a theological foundation for meaningful partnership and mission together. And so I think that's been one of my difficulties with some of the, I guess, modern conversation around confessionalism is because I hear a lot of rhetoric and push for cooperation and mission but they've, in some ways, I, I don't hear the same kind of theological rigor so that we're actually like-minded in the things that we're uh, supposedly on mission for. And so that's been just a, a deep concern of mine is people continuing to push about the mission and not so much emphasize the, the, the depth of, of shared conviction about that. And so I think I probably got more agitated than I should have been after some of the stuff with the Southern Baptist Convention this year. Um, but it's, it's really because I, I want to, I really want to have meaningful partnership with other churches. Um, but it's it's really difficult to do that when you can't be confident that those other churches are really um, 
on the same page about some really important ecclesiological things. And so um, it's really hard to get um, a church excited about denominational church planting and international missions when the gospel being shared or the churches being planted are, 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 are not things that we would actually be excited about if it were happening in our town. And so that, that's something that I, I really want to see a stronger confessionalism for the sake of more meaningful um, like missionary partnership. Is that too much to ask? Well, no, Garrett, if, if, I, if I could just jump in real quick to say, like, the way that I framed it for a lot of Southern Baptists, especially my generation and younger, is we're supposed to have a confessional identity and a missional character, right? That's how I conceive of it, right? We have a confessional identity that tells us who we are and then a missional character that, that orients us to, to fulfill the Great Commission. But the SBC largely has a, um, a, a missional identity, and not a confessional identity. And they champion that, actually. So I think if it, because those have been reversed, I, I think we get that's why we're getting into some trouble. That's very helpful. That's very helpful. Uh, I, I, I hadn't thought about it quite that way, but that is actually really helpful. And actually, what's really fascinating when you say that to me is that I can see in the Reformed Baptist world outside SBC that I tend to traffic in that we're becoming more missional in our identity and we're becoming less concerned about our confessionalism. And I wonder if that's really what is the, at, the, at the very heart of confessional drift um, and how it begins to develop. And maybe not hit it so bad this generation, but the next generation it will be diluted and then the third generation it may even be gone. Um, someone, uh, Steve got a hold of a book. Well, he gets hold of tons of books because he's a prolific reader, but this little book came into our uh, hands called The Erosion of Calvinistic Orthodoxy, Drifting from the Truth and Confessional Scottish Churches. Of course, I picked it up because it's got a Scottish flag on the front, um, and it was written by Ian Hamilton, and it's regarding the confessional drift of Presbyterianism in the 19th century in Scotland, which, of course, grown up in Scotland with the Church of Scotland and all the debate. And Hamilton points this out, that uh, confessional drift, it, it comes in when there's a lack of true strict subscription and you begin to loosen everything up uh, because you have a different mission uh, that you're now pursuing. And I think your your perception there, Joe, in the SBC, which I'm not so familiar with, but it's very helpful for me to think about what is going on in Reformed Baptist circles today where these debates are happening. Um, I want to think more about that, but that was, that was a very helpful observation, brother. Yeah, another, another point kind of on that about kind of a confessional identity. Um, I want to come back to Joe's point about uh, the potential of local associations. I think at least my perception is a lot of Southern Baptist churches see themselves as, I guess, more as part of a national convention than they do a local association. And so when I guess you see yourself as part of a really, really big thing, like at the national level, um, versus as part of a, a smaller thing at the associational level, I think it might be easier to um, justify uh, I guess, confessional irregularities. I guess the, the bigger the thing gets, the harder it is to control, I suppose. And so I, I do wonder if a kind of a revitalization of local associations could help us in recovering more of a confessional identity. Um, I don't know what you guys think about that. I think it's great, Garrett. I think that's the way it's going to go. I think with the, with the pulling down of T4G in terms of folding the tent and the national conference issue, I think, and the general political climate of the country, one of the things we've realized, I think, through COVID, where even there was debate in the church, 
is how localised we are and how it's very different for Joe, uh, for Connor, for the brothers in Louisville than it is for me in Sacramento, California. Um, and so when someone puts out, you know, this is the way we need to do it in America, and we're sitting in California going, yeah, right, that ain't going to fly here, boys. That's a joke. Uh, we realise that we're really very regionalised and there's wisdom in having regional associations that actually identify with the particular context in which you're in. And I think history shows us that. I think that, you know, the London churches uh, that basically put together the 1689, they knew each other. They were close proximity to one another. Um, there was a Northern Association. There was a West Country Association. Why? Because, well, of course, in the time in which they lived, travel was different. But I think we've got to look at regional associationism um, and really work harder at that and then have inter-fellowship with maybe associations across the country, but recognising that your context and my context are not identical and there are certain nuances and emphases that we need to appreciate are not going to look exactly the same or be exactly the same uh, in the furtherance of the work of the gospel. Now, one question I want to have for you guys, and we, and we can come back to this because it looks like a lot of you guys have questions, but I do want to ask one thing before um, I don't have any time on this. I get a lot of questions, or I see a lot of questions on pastors who are, they've, they've come into a church, they, they've loved that church for several years, and now they're at a point of realizing I think we need to change the confession of the church because what I came into was like either there's like nothing there or it's just not a very good confession or something like that. Maybe they have, maybe they're too literal on certain things. Like they've got, I think a lot of Baptist churches in certain areas, they've got like these pre-millennial, pre-trip, like just super specific things on areas that we would say, I don't know if we want to be as specific there. I think we should be more specific in other areas and more less la and more lax in others. Do you have any advice for those pastors who would seek to change their confession to something either more robust or more traditionally Baptist in, in different, whether it's New Hampshire, they want to go to or the second London or, or something like that. What, what's the process? How would you, what are the th two or three things you would say, definitely do this if you want to lead that transition well? I would say, first of all, be very, 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 very patient. Um, my history, Jordan, you don't know my history. I'm just past 30 years in pastoral ministry. And my first pastoral charge was as a 25-year-old uh, who tried to bring in the 1689 confession to his church. And after three and a half years, it blew up in my face. Um, and I realized the lessons from that were uh, even when you thought you've taught the congregation, uh, you need to teach some more. You need to pray. You need to be patient. It's not a. It's not a a badge to get a hold of and say, look at me, I am orthodox. You're there to disciple. You're there to uh, feed the sheep. You're there to be patient with the, the sheep. And it really depends on what you inherit, whatever you've gone into. If you've inherited a situation that's a long tradition of dispensationalism and you're going to try and take it to a covenantal position, well, first of all, I'd say maybe it wasn't the wisest call you took. But uh, if you have done that, then you need to be very, very patient. You won't turn that around uh, maybe in a decade, uh, maybe maybe longer, to be honest. And so as one who's been involved now you know, in pastoral training for a while, I'll always say to young men, don't do what I did, learn from the mistakes I made and uh, recognize the importance of you know, teach, pray, visit, be patient, teach, pray, patience, 
you know, visit, love you, love your congregation. Your goal is to make them like Christ. Um, and yeah, we believe that that involves maturing and developing in confessionalism, but don't just cause a civil war in the church in order to have a piece of paper in your desk. Uh, it's much, much, much bigger than that. And so be patient, recognize they need to love, recognize they need to bring the congregation with you, or decide that you can't do that and you, with a good conscience, can't be there, then do the honorable thing, resign and find somewhere else to labor for the gospel. This is just making probably doctrinal changes in general. Um, uh, yes, patience, you got to lay a lot of groundwork, you got to do a lot of teaching, but I, I would even suggest you need to, hopefully it's a small enough church to say this, but you need to essentially or basically know what everybody's going to vote before you walk into that you know, congregational decision. Um, of course you can't do that perfectly, but, um, uh, you, you want to have the, you know, visit the small groups, right. Visit the homes and you can't just do the, um, again, this is more practical procedural than, than it is, uh, doctrinal theological, but, um, you can't just do the whole, okay, we're going to give everybody a month to come and talk to the pastors or the elders, um, so if you have a question, just come see us, you know, and then I think, yeah, offer that, but you kind of have to do it both and you need to offer that, but you also need to kind of meet them where they are, go to that particular small group or those particular small groups who you kind of already feel like, you know, they're, they're still in a different time period. Um, so I, I, I think, yes, there's a lot of teaching. Uh, what I, what I've been doing my first three years as a pastor is, Sprinkling in those um, those um, quotations or those references to the to the sixteen eighty nine, uh, not neglecting other ones though, because um, I think there's there's helpful things to say from other confessions. But um, just sort of over time, getting them more and more familiar with it, so that it, it almost happens naturally, right? Um, year five, we're not all right. We're voting on the sixteen eighty nine like that. That that would be silly, um, but. It, you almost want to come to the point where it's not your idea anymore. Um, and, and that kind of just, that's sort of the identity of the church. And it just, hopefully we get to that point. Um, yeah, Lord willing. But, uh, I think that's more of the, the, the game plan, so to speak is to, you know, just sort of over time, everybody knows it. Everybody says, yeah, that's not really the official thing, but that's kind of, you know, where our elders are, where our pastors are. And um, Lord willing, hopefully through prayer and patience and and good pastoring, um, again, it just sort of the gravity just pulls everybody in that direction. Um, and I don't know, maybe that's a terrible idea, a terrible plan, but we'll we'll see how it goes. So a lot of things there, uh, a lot of random thoughts, but um, just some practical things that even I'm, I'm seeing in our church and what what we're working through. So, Joe. It's- Tell me this. Oftentimes people look at guys who want to say, you've got to be serious about the confession. They say, you're just a grumpy jerk. But for you, I think people look at you and say, wow, you're actually cool. You're chill. You're not like overly trying to jump on people's kids. You're not like the heresy hunter. Like, well, I'm going to go look down the list of churches in my association. I'm going to watch their sermons. I'm going to find anything, any language that was potentially outside the confession. And I'm going to nail them to the wall. How do you develop the right sort of spirit with confessionalism where yes, you take it seriously, but you're not like 
out there to like attack people. Cause I feel like the internet has almost created this sort of um, context where we're trying to like look for problems. And I mean, I hope that people aren't looking at what I've said four years ago, five years ago and saying, look, he was sloppy here because I know I make mistakes and I've learned and I've grown. So how do you develop that sort of, I don't know, this just charitable disposition where you're just not a total jerk about everything? Well, if I'm honest, um, the reason I'm chill is because I have a vitamin D deficiency. (laughs) Anyway. Um... Come on, man. Come to California, Joe. We get plenty of sunshine here. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so one person here doesn't understand the dig. <laughs> Sorry, Robert. It's a, sort of an inside joke uh, that's not very funny. So, um, okay. Well, I guess I, I don't know. I don't know anybody who's serious about theology who wasn't a jerk at some point. I mean, I was a, I was a angry, arrogant heresy hunter. Um, and I was known for that, especially in college. Um, I, th- I, th- I think I can only speak for myself, and then I'll give you practical reasons to not be too intense. Um, I was known as the, the, the argumentative theologian when I was uh, on campus at my Bible college. And um, uh, according to some of the administration, I had too much undue influence on students, moving them towards Reformed theology, whatever. So, um, but at the end of my senior year in college, I began to see that I was, um, I was using the Bible, not really reading and hearing the Word of God. I was, um, I was, I was more in love with theology than I was with. God. I was more in love with systematics than the Savior. I was. I was very, very. It became very clear to me, and so I began a process of repentance that continued through seminary. So I personally had to just see, like, that I had exchanged the glory of God for the glory of a system. Um, and once I once I figured that out, then I was able to then properly leverage the system. Like, oh, I, it really is about God. It really is about the knowledge of God, and these systems can help. Um, so on a personal level, that was how I did it. But I think there's just a practical issue to address with people that are, you know, that tend to be, that come in really hot and are very argumentative and are bullish and pugnacious. You're not changing anybody's mind. Like you don't, you, you want to move people into Calvinism. You want to move people into confessionalism and calm down and be friendly and have some fun and show the the reality and the practicality of the confession. Like I got really good advice from a seminary president one time. I said, what, give me, it was like an elevator pitch thing. He said, give me the best advice you can give me for raising kids. You have godly kids. I've got young kids. Tell me. And he said, love Jesus and have fun. If you love Jesus and have fun with your kids, your kids are going to be all right. That's what he said. That was great advice, right? Very simple, really good. Same with the confession. So I think that we, we, uh, we demonstrate uh, a cooperative spirit, uh, a, a, a willingness to listen and understand people while holding fast to our confession in a friendly way, it makes people rather curious. It makes people rather like, what, what's going on over here? What is this all about? And just as Connor was saying, you, 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 you introduce the confession in your church, for example, you're leveraging it, you're quoting it, you're citing it, you bring a reading in, you know, for, from, from the corporate worship side. People get comfortable with it. They understand it. Oh, they see that it's useful. It's not used to beat people up. It's used to make disciples. 
you know, it's, it's, it's a summary and a systemization of what the Bible teaches. That's a great thing. That's a necessary thing. So I just think it's more advantageous. And that's not why I'm trying to be kinder to people these days. Um, but it's just not smart to go in hot and blast everybody because you don't change anybody's minds. You just get attaboys from your friends and you're not moving anybody to embrace the truth. And Robert, I mean, you've got a sword behind you, so I don't know what you've got going on with the kindness. I got two swords, actually. There's another one here. Listen. Robert has swords and blood in his beard right now. He's a true Scotsman. This is my Gettysburg sword, and this is my Scottish Claymore. Wow. And as a good Baptist, I've got John Calvin on my wall. <laughs> Connor, you it, had something you wanted to say. Uh, I'll let you go. This is, uh, yeah, just a continuing to piggyback on introducing this to a church and, and making people comfortable with it. You know, I, I, we go through our members class and I talk about how Baptists are confessional uh, and, and um, they will ask, okay, tell us about these confessions. What does that mean? And I said, I asked them, okay, what do you believe about Christianity? And they're kind of like, well, you know, I believe the Bible. So, okay, great. I hand, I almost, sometimes I'll hand them a Bible and, and I'll say, explain that to me in a short, concise way so that I know that we kind of believe the same things because they're Roman Catholics, they're Lutherans, there are, you know, et cetera, on down the line. And so then I hand them a little small, tiny booklet and I say, this is the 1699 confession. You can read that in a day, uh, an afternoon. And now, you know, that I know, that you know, where we are on, on, on the same pages and whatnot. And so that kind of helps people, some light bulbs flicker. And, and you know, you can, te- you can say, well, everybody has a confession. Well, everybody has a confession. And that's, and I think everybody can, you know, understand that to a degree. Uh, but when you kind of practically say, um, instead of me giving you the whole Bible and you just having to assume what I believe, at, at our church, I can give you, you know, a one-page thing. Uh, but hopefully over time it'll be a little more robust. Um, but I can hand them a little booklet called the London Baptist Confession and say, hey, this is a precise, um, this is not the the the, uh, the ship that we're sitting, this is not, um, I'm, trying to, I'm mixing my metaphors almost, but uh, you know, the, our confession is not um, you know, the Bible, but it tethers us to the Bible and, and it keeps us kind of on the, on the narrow, right? And, and it, it, it it's like a guardrail that prevents us from going too far to the left, too far to the right. And um, so I, I think when you kind of um, paint that picture for people and say, look, I, I can't share with you in, in a meeting, in an afternoon, um, in a year, in, 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 in however long, by just handing you the Bible and saying, this is what we believe. There, there's way more to it than that, obviously. And, and I think that's been helpful for us in just kind of painting the picture of, of the, the benefit of confessions and introducing them to, to people. So, Jake, you've been quiet for a while. I, I imagine you have something you want to say before we wrap up. Well, I, I think that I want to say something earlier that when we were talking about associations, I'm reminded of in the history of American Baptist, I really think we would do a it would serve us well to go back and really study and understand the Philadelphia Baptist Association and how the Philadelphia Association 
as a group of churches, only I think it was either five or may have been seven when that association formed at the beginning of the 18th century. And by the end of it, they have planted sister associations throughout the North and the Middle Colonies and to the South. They've started Brown University. They're sending itinerant preachers into Kentucky and Virginia to bring the gospel. And one of the things that fascinates me is that the Philadelphia Association was not interested in building a kingdom unto itself. They were going and planting and organizing not just churches, but helping associations form in those regional areas so that they could have tighter bonds together. Now, I, I totally admit that I'm a huge nerd. And the reason that I can say that is because I go back and read old Baptist minutes. So I, I know not very many people do that. And one of the things that's fascinating when you read the old association minutes is you see, for example, how they would send representatives from one association to the other association. That was a means of fellowship. They also would read their letters out loud. And it wasn't just about the nickels and the noses, about how much money they had and how many people they had. They were letters where they said, you know, this past year, our pastor was sick a lot. We weren't able to meet as often. It was rough spiritually. Or the Lord has blessed us tremendously. And the reason that they would open up in front of their brothers and sisters about the spiritual condition of their church was to either give praise to God or it was a way of praying for one another. And we have to be careful. I'm not trying to say that everything in the past was perfect and beautiful, but I do think that we've, we've missed something on the, I think Timothy George says it best, Baptist identity was communitarian, whether it be about our confessions, our catechisms, or our associational life. And we have so much become so individualistic, we've lost sight that it's not about us building our own little kingdom together, but it's about that we are members of the kingdom of God, working together to bring the gospel forth. Last question, Joe and Robert. Um, just what's what's one of the promises or maybe one of the perils of, of confessionalism that you see over the next 10 years? And you would say, I mean, I'm not asking you to be a prophet. I'm just asking you to predict and say, this is something that I think is going to be good that comes forth from confessionalism. And I think this is one thing that we have to be wary of over the next 10 to 15 years when it comes to confessionalism, because all of us here, whether whatever denomination we are, we're all Reformed Baptists who love the second letter confession of faith. So just in that context, in those confines, maybe it's applicable to other communities. Maybe, maybe you can be a Presbyterian from Westminster and, and this might apply, but maybe it doesn't. It, I'm thinking specifically Reformed Baptists here with, with these sort of promise or peril sort of ideas. So I think that there are, are two things um, that are obvious. One is that confessionalism is going to grow. People are interested, and especially the Baptists, the confessional Baptists, and I mean confessional, reformed confessional Baptists, not Owen Strain and those guys. I mean real confessional reformed Baptist guys. They are writing the best theology proper stuff that's modern They're, because it's classic. Like the, there, there is a movement, I think, that's happening. Confessionalism is going to continue to catch on and grow. That's what I predict. The second thing is uh, the danger of elitism and arrogance. And I'm very concerned that we avoid that pitfall. Um, when I go and speak with Presbyterians, I've been at conferences where there are four plenary speakers and I'm the only Baptist and the rest are Scottish Presbyterian, right? 
And they are nothing but gracious and kind to me. They love me. They're just, I, I feel so honored that my smarter, more sophisticated older brothers would let me come and hang out and play with them. Uh, we need to have that spirit, not just with Presbyterians, but with non-Calvinistic, non-confessional Baptists. We need to be the bigger brother uh, that exercises warmth and openness and dialogue. So I just wanted to make sure like, as this confessionalism grows, that we have some seasoned saints like Jim Renahan. Like Jim Renahan is bow tie, like hair parted on the side, like, and he can roll with me and Jimmy. Like he's just, he's, he's cool. Like he, he doesn't, he doesn't put on airs. He's himself, but he embraces others. We need that kind of humility, not the, not the aggressive elitism that we're seeing in the more fundamentalistic Baptist, the fundamentalistic Calvinistic Baptists, Baptists that we're seeing uh, with larger online platforms today. So, Growth in confessionalism, good. Guard against elitism in confessionalism. Let me encourage Jake before I go. Uh, I was reading this to my congregation yesterday, Jake, the Philadelphia Minute, so I'm a bigger nerd than any nerd. <laughs> <laughs> we were doing, a, I was teaching in our discipleship hour on associationism, and I was using that. It's a, it's a great read, and I love it, and there's a lot to learn from it. I think, you know, looking back over the 30 years or plus that I've been in Reformed Baptist circles outside of SBC, obviously, uh, I think there's a lot I've benefited from. I think that uh, a, a high view of scripture, a high view of preaching, uh, commitment in the local church, church discipline, things that have really been, in, in many ways, have been neglected for a long time. But I do think, to Joe's point, uh, I think what I had, what I detected, what I was guilty of myself in my younger years, I think, was a tendency to think, you know, in a more sectarian manner, a more elitist manner. It was pride, uh, and we have to repent of that and humble ourselves. I think that that's where, as I'm watching a wider constituency, SBC brothers and many others getting a hunger and a thirst and a delight and a commitment to confessionalism, I don't want you guys to necessarily repeat those mistakes that were made. That's why I really appreciate, you know, Jordan, not that I'm, I'm in any way flattering you, but the spirit which lets you do the London Lyceum has been a refreshment to me as someone who's outside of SBC circles, but in Reformed Baptist world uh, beyond that, um, because I think that we've been a reactionary movement. And uh, as a result, we just react to the latest, scan, uh, you know, issue we don't like, and now we fracture and we do... That. I'm 55. Uh, I'm very encouraged that the younger men like you guys that are coming up. And uh, I think the future is bright if we stay humble. The future is bright if we remain Catholic in our spirit. The future is bright if we're honest, even in our disagreements, charitable, even in our disagreements. Um, my concern for some of the older Reformed Baptist churches may be that they uh, are going to be in trouble down the line because they tend to be either isolated, in other words, not in an association, uh, or they don't have anybody coming up to be pastors, which I think is a major problem. Um, and those churches may just disappear. Uh, you know, it's very interesting when you read the minutes of the Philadelphia, like Jake said, some of the churches were, were, were they disappear. You know, they, they, they don't stay there forever. And, uh, and, and so you learn from that that we've got to have uh, a Catholic spirit We've got to relate to the wider church. One of the things I really appreciate about where we're at in SAC, we're one of only two 1689 churches that are represented in our pastors fraternal that we host of about 35 pastors. Um, and we have great fellowship with those brothers. And to Joe's point, we want to show the friendly, fun-loving, 
gracious, kind spirit of the gospel to our brothers. They may never become 60 and 89 guys, but they're our brothers and we love them. We're committed to the same gospel. So we want to maintain that spirit. At the same time, very often over private lunches, we'll say, well, in our confession and in our tradition, some of that doesn't happen because of X, Y, and Z. And maybe this you'll find this helpful and you can benefit from that. So I think the future, if we stay humble, if we're prayerful, um, if we grow in our love, even for those you know who are detractors, the Lord will, I believe, build his church. Um, and I'm very hopeful the younger generation are, because of the rediscovery of a lot of historical theology, the rediscovery of a lot of source material, I think a lot of younger men are going to benefit from it in a way that I didn't have that opportunity when I was in my 20s or my 30s. And I would just encourage younger men to just learn from their fathers the good, the bad and the ugly and uh, press forward. And I'm very hopeful that, to your point, Joe, confessionalism is going to grow because I believe that is how the Lord is going to be building his church. And I would just say this last thing. With the progressivism of and the decline of America in many ways in different regards, the one the one thing that's going to stand against so much of what's happening in our culture is a solid, robust, historical confessionalism because of the, the philosophical elements, because of the, the theological elements. That's what's going to stand. Churches that don't have that, they're going to be, I believe, uh, sandcastles. They're going to be washed away. And so we need to be clear on that. We need to be honest about that. We need to be uh, committed to seeing that spread. And I'm convinced that regional associations are, in many ways, what we need to really put most of our energy into. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, good advice, guys. Um, well, this has been awesome. I think we could probably talk for another hour about um, all the nuances of confessionalism, especially some of the particulars. Because I think, you know, once you get the big idea, uh, the, the questions that end up coming up is like, well, me and my situation, how do I apply this to this? So what I tell you, if you're listening and you have those questions, uh, I mean, just either A, find like-minded pastors in your own regional area and begin meeting with those brothers and ask those questions there, workshop them there. Or, I mean, I think a lot of these guys here who are even in this and other, I mean, the Center for Baptist Renewal is doing really cool stuff. There's there's lots of groups that are doing cool things and they're approachable and they can help answer questions if you reach out to them and ask ask something. I mean, Jimmy and Joe, Joe you guys do like 5,000 podcasts a week and they've got a mailbag. You can submit your question to the mailbag and they'll talk about it and answer it and they'll spend 30 minutes. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. If it's a good question. Maybe. If it's a good no question. no promise. <laughs> I'm probably could be a good question. We just, you know, we got a lot going on, but we'll try. So I'm telling you, just find the resources that you have. Ask the questions, because I think this is a need for us and our churches for the health and vitality of them is to begin digging more into the confession, understanding what confessionalism means and begin utilizing it for the, the health and the growth of your church, our churches. Um, this is a much, I'm not in, into church growth strategies in the mega church sense, but I mean, this will grow your church down deep into the gospel. I really believe it. So I think Amen. you should be consider thinking and understanding what confessionalism looks like and how it applies in your own context. I mean, Robert, I, don't, I can't even remember now if you mentioned it, but you, uh, Carl Truman's book, like what, Creed, yeah. what's, the, what's the name of it again? Yeah, The Creedal Imperative is a book I would encourage every guy, if you haven't read it, get a hold of it, have a read through it. Pray through it. Think it through. I think Carl does a great job in that. His usual erudite, clear self. Uh, I can even hear his English accent when I read it. It's quite funny. 
It's not as good as your accent, though. So we'll, we'll give you credit well, there for that. Cool. Yeah, right on that, John. He knows that I, too, though. I, I visited Scotland for the first time a couple of months ago, and immediately I knew this place is 1,000 times better than England, anywhere in England. I've been to multi, like several places in England, stayed. Nothing compares to Scotland. So I'll, I'll give you that. Anyway, well, I appreciate that, Jordan. The, the, the best thing that came out of England is the road to Scotland. So that's, uh, you know, that's, that's, our, that's our in-house joke for all my English brothers who are listening. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks, guys, for joining us. And everybody's been listening and tuning in. We thank you uh, for listening to the London Lyceum. We are the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.